Chapters 19 and 20 of The Mill Mystery by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19 A Fatal Delay. He was to all appearance immediately forgotten. As with mutual consent we all turned and faced each other, Mrs. Pollard with a stern, inexorable look in her dark eye, which, while it held me enchained, caused me to involuntarily lay my hand upon the document which I had hidden in my breast. She noticed the movement and smiled darkly with a sidelong look at her son. The smile and the look affected me strangely. In them I seemed to detect something deeper than hatred and baffled rage, and when, in a moment later, her son responded to her glance by quietly withdrawing from the room, I felt such revolt against their secrecy that for a moment I was tempted to abandon an undertaking that promised to bring me in conflict with passions of so deep and unrelenting a nature." but the impression which the pain and despair of my dead friend had made upon me was as yet too recent for me to yield to my first momentary apprehensions, and summoning up what resolution I possessed, I took my leave of Mrs. Pollard and was hastening towards the door, when her voice, rising cold and clear, arrested me. "'You think, then, that it is your duty to carry this paper from the house, Mr. Barrows?' "'Yes, madam, I do,' was my short reply." "'In spite of my protest and that of my son?' "'Yes, madam.' "'Then upon your head be the consequences,' she exclaimed, and turned her back upon me with a look which went with me as I closed the door between us, lending a gloom to the unlighted halls and sombre staircases that affected me almost with an impulse of fear.' I dreaded crossing to where the stairs descended, I dreaded going down them into the darkness which I saw below. Not that I anticipated actual harm, but that I felt I was in the house of those who longed to see me the victim of it, and my imagination being more than usually alert, I even found myself fancying the secret triumph with which Guy Pollard would hail an incautious slip on my part that would precipitate me from the top to the bottom of this treacherous staircase that he was somewhere between me and the front door i felt certain the deadly quiet behind and before me seemed to assure me of this and ashamed as i was of the impulse that moved me i could not prevent myself from stepping cautiously as i prepared to descend saying as some sort of excuse to myself he is capable of seeing me trip without assistance and as my imagination continued its work he is even capable of putting out his foot to help forward such a catastrophe. And indeed I now think that if this simple plan had presented itself to his subtle mind, of stunning, if not disabling me, and thus making it possible for them to obtain his father's will without an open assault, he would not have hesitated to embrace it. But he evidently did not calculate, as I did, the chances of such an act, or perhaps he felt that I was likely to be too much upon my guard to fall a victim to this expedient, for I met no one as I advanced, and was well down the stairs and on my way to the front door, before I perceived any signs of life in the sombre house. Then a sudden glare of light across my path betrayed the fact that a door had been swung wide in a certain short passage that opened ahead of me and while I involuntarily stopped, a shadow creeping along the further wall of that passage warned me that someone, I could not doubt it to be Guy Pollard, had come out to meet me. 
the profound stillness and the sudden pause which the shadow made as i inconsiderately stumbled in my hesitation assured me that i was right in attributing a sinister motive to this encounter naturally therefore i drew back keeping my eyes upon the shadow it did not move convinced now that danger of some kind lay ahead of me i looked behind and about me for some means of escaping from the house without passing by my half-seen enemy but none presented themselves either i must slink away into the kitchen region a proceeding from which my whole manhood revolted or i must advance and face whatever evil awaited me desperation drove me to the latter course making one bound i stood before that lighted passage a slim firm figure confronted me but it was not that of guy but of his older brother dwight the surprise of the shock together with a certain revelation which came to me at the same moment and of which i will speak hereafter greatly unnerved me i had not been thinking of dwight pollard strange as it may seem i had not even missed him from the bedside of his father to see him then here and now caused many thoughts to spring into my mind foremost among which was the important one as to whether he was of a nature to lend himself to any scheme of violence the quickness with which i decided to the contrary proved to me in what different estimation i had always held him from what i had his mother and brother it was consequently no surprise to me when he leaned forward and spoke to me with consideration and force i was only surprised at his words don't stop mr barrows said he go home at once only and here he paused listened then proceeded with increased emphasis don't go by the way of orchard street and without waiting for my reply he stepped back and noiselessly regained the apartment he had left while i in a confusion of emotions difficult to analyze at the moment hastily accepted his advice and withdrew from the house the relief of breathing the fresh air again was indescribable if i had not escaped the miasma and oppression of a prison i certainly had left behind me the influences of darkness and sinister suggestion which in the light of the calm moonbeams that i found flooding the world without had the effect upon me of a vanished horror only i was still haunted by that last phrase which i had heard uttered don't go by the way of orchard street an injunction which simply meant don't go with that document to the lawyers to-night now was this order given as it was by dwight pollard one of warning or of simple threat my good will toward this especial member of the pollard family inclined me to think it the former there was danger then lurking for me somewhere on the road to mr nichols house was it my duty to encounter this danger it appeared to me not especially as it was not necessary for me to acquit myself so instantly of the commission with which i had been entrusted i accordingly proceeded directly home but once again in my familiar study i became conscious of a strong dissatisfaction with myself indeed i may speak more forcibly and say i was conscious of a loss of trust in my own manhood which was at once so new and startling that it was as if a line had been drawn between my past and present this was due to the discovery i had made at the moment i had confronted dwight pollard a discovery so humiliating in its character that it had shaken me body and soul 
I had found in the light of that critical instant that I, David Barrows, was a coward. Yes, gloss it over as I would, the knowledge was deep in my mind that I lacked manhood's most virile attribute, that peril, real or imaginary, could awaken in me fear, and that the paling cheek and trembling limbs of which I had been so bitterly conscious at that instant were but the outward signs of a weakness that extended deep down into my soul. It was a revelation calculated to stagger any man, how much more than one who had so relied upon his moral powers as to take upon himself the sacred name of minister. But this was not all. I had not only found myself to be a coward, but I had shown myself such to another's eyes. By the searching look which Dwight Pollard had given me before he spoke, and the quiet, half-disdainful curve which his lips took at the disclosure of his scrutiny, I was convinced that he saw the defect in my nature and despised me for it, even while he condescended to offer me the protection which my fears seemed to demand. Or— the thought could come now that I was at home and had escaped the dangers lying in wait for me on the road to my duty, he had made use of my weakness to gain his own ends. The carrying of that document to Mr. Nichols meant loss of property to them all, perhaps, and he had but taken means, consistent with his character, to ensure the delay which his brother had possibly planned to gain in some more reprehensible manner and I had yielded to my fears and let his will have its way. I hated myself as I considered my own weakness. I could find no excuse either for my pusillanimity or for that procrastination of my duty into which it had betrayed me. I found I could not face my own scorn, and rising from my study chair I took my hat and went out. I had determined to make amends for my fault by going at once to Orchard Street. And I did— but alas for the result the half-hour i had lost was fatal to be sure i met with no adventure on my way but i found mr nichols out he had been summoned by a telegram to boston and had been absent from the house only fifteen minutes i meditated following him to the station but the whistle sounded just as i turned away from his door and i knew i should be too late Humiliated still further in my own estimation, I went home to wait with what patience I could for the two or three days which must elapse before his return. Before I went to bed that night I opened the book which Mr. Pollard had given me, in the expectation of finding a letter in it, or at least some writing on the title page or the blank pages of the book. But I was disappointed in both regards— with the exception of some minute pencil marks scattered here and there along the text, indications, doubtless, of favorite passages, I perceived nothing in the volume to account for the extreme earnestness with which he had presented it. End of chapter 19 Chapter 20 The Old Mill I did not sleep well that night, but this did not prevent me from beginning work early in the morning. The sermon I had been interrupted in the afternoon before had to be completed that day, and I was hard at work upon it when there came a knock at my study door. I arose with anything but alacrity and opened it. Dwight Pollard stood before me. It was a surprise that called up a flush to my cheeks, but daylight was shining upon this interview, and I knew none of those sensations which had unnerved me the night before. 
I was simply on my guard, and saw him seat himself in my own chair without any other feeling than that of curiosity as to the nature of his errand. He likewise was extremely self-possessed, and looked at me calmly for some instants before speaking. "'Last night,' he began, "'you refused a request which my mother made of you.' I bowed. "'It was a mistake,' he continued. "'The paper which my father gave you cannot be one which he in his right senses would wish seen by the public. You should have trusted my mother, who knew my father much better than you did.' It was not a matter of trust, I protested. A document had been given me by a dying man, with an injunction to put it into certain hands. I had no choice but to fulfill his wishes in this regard. Your mother herself would have despised me if I had yielded to her importunities and left it behind me. My mother, he commenced. Your mother is your mother, I put in. Let us have respect for her widowhood and leave her out of this conversation." He looked at me closely, and I understood his glance. "'I cannot return you your father's will,' I declared firmly. He held my glance with his. "'Have you it still?' he asked. "'I cannot return it to you,' I repeated. He arose and approached me courteously. "'You are doing what you consider to be your duty,' said he. "'In other words than my mother used, I simply add, "'On our heads must be the consequences.' and his grave look, at once half-sad and half-determined, impressed me for the first time with a certain sort of sympathy for this unhappy family. "'And this leads me to the purpose of my call,' he proceeded deferentially. "'I am here at my mother's wish, and I bring you her apologies. Though you have done and are doing wrong by your persistence in carrying out my poor father's wishes to the detriment of his memory,' My mother regrets that she spoke to you in the manner she did, and hopes you will not allow it to stand in the way of your conducting the funeral services. Mr. Pollard, I replied, your father was my friend, and to no other man could I delegate the privilege of uttering prayers over his remains. But I would not be frank to you, nor true to myself, if I did not add that it will take more than an apology from your mother to convince me that she wishes me well— or is, indeed, anything but the enemy her looks proclaimed her to be last night. I am sorry, he began, but meeting my eye, stopped. You possess a moral courage which I envy you, he declared, and, waiving the subject of his mother, he proceeded to inform me concerning the funeral and the arrangements which had been made. I listened calmly. In the presence of this man I felt strong. Though he knew the secret of my weakness, and possibly despised me for it, he also knew what indeed he had just acknowledged, that in some respects I was on a par with him. The arrangements were soon made, and he took his leave without any further allusion to personal matters. But I noticed that at the door he stopped and cast a look of inquiry around the room, it disconcerted me somewhat, and while I found it difficult to express to myself the nature of the apprehensions which it caused, I inwardly resolved to rid myself as soon as possible of the responsibility of holding Mr. Pollard's will. If Mr. Nichols did not return by the day of the funeral, I would go myself to Boston and find him. No occurrence worth mentioning followed this interview with Dwight Pollard. I conducted the services as I had promised, but found nothing to relate concerning them, save the fact that Mrs. Pollard was not present. 
she had been very much prostrated by her husband's death and was not able to leave her room or so it was said i mistrusted the truth of this however but must acknowledge i was glad to be relieved of a presence not only so obnoxious to myself but so out of tune with the occasion i could ignore guy subtle and secret as he was but this woman could not be ignored where she was there brooded something dark mysterious and threatening and whether she smiled or frowned the influence of her spirit was felt by a vague oppression at once impossible to analyze or escape from from the cemetery i went immediately to my house the day was a dreary one and i felt chilled the grey of the sky was in my spirit and everything seemed unreal and dark and strange I was in a mood, I suppose, and, unlike myself on other similar occasions, did not feel that drawing towards the one dear heart which hitherto had afforded me solace and support. I had not got used to my new self as yet, and till I did, the smile of her I loved was more of a reproach to me than consolation. I was stopped at the gate by Mrs. Banks. She is my next-door neighbor, and in the absence of my landlady, who had gone to visit some friends, took charge of any message which might be left for me while I was out. She looked flurried and mysterious. "'You have had a visitor,' she announced. As she paused and looked as if she expected to be questioned, I naturally asked who it was. "'She said she was your sister,' she declared, "'a tall woman with a thick veil over her face. "'She went right up to your study, "'but I think she must have got tired of waiting, "'for she went away again a few moments ago. "'My sister? I had no sister. "'I looked at Mrs. Banks in amazement. "'Describe her more particularly,' said I. "'That I cannot do,' she returned. "'Her veil hid her features too completely for me to see them.' I could not even tell her age, but I should say from the way she walked that she was older than you. A chill which did not come entirely from the east wind then blowing ran sharply through my veins. I thank you, said I somewhat incoherently, and ran hastily upstairs. I had a presentiment as to the identity of this woman. At the door of my study I paused and looked hurriedly around. No signs of any disturbance met my eye. Crossing over to my desk, I surveyed the papers which I had left scattered somewhat loosely over it. They had been moved. I knew it by the position of the blotter, which I had left under a certain sheet of paper, and which now lay on top. Hot and cold at once, I went immediately to the spot where I had concealed Mr. Pollard's will. It was in my desk, but underneath a drawer instead of in it, and by this simple precaution perhaps I had saved it from destruction, for I found it lying in its place undisturbed, though the hand which had crept so near its hiding-place was, as I felt certain, no other than that of Mrs. Pollard, searching for this very document. It gave me a shuddering sense of disquiet to think that the veiled figure of this portentous woman had glided over my floors, reflected itself in my mirrors, and hung dark and mysterious in its veiling drapery over my desk and the papers which I had handled myself so lately. I was struck, too, by the immovable determination to compass her own ends at any and every risk which was manifested by this incident 
and wondering more and more as to what had been the nature of the offence for which mr pollard sought to make reparation in his will i only waited for a moment of leisure in order to make another effort at enlightenment by a second study of the prayer-book which my dying friend had placed so earnestly in my hands it came as i supposed about eight o'clock that evening the special duties of the day were done and i knew of nothing else that demanded my attention i therefore took the book from my pocket where i had fortunately kept it and was on the point of opening its pages when there came a ring at the door-bell below as i have said before my landlady was away i consequently went to the door myself where i was met by an unexpected visitor in the shape of the idiot boy colwell somewhat disconcerted at the sight of a face so repugnant to me i was still more thrown off my balance when i heard his errand he had been sent he said by a man who had been thrown from his wagon on the north road and was now lying in a dying condition inside the old mill before which he was picked up would i come and see him he had but an hour or so to live and wished very much for a clergyman's consolation it was a call anything but agreeable to me i was tired i was interested in the attempt which i was about to make to solve a mystery that was not altogether disconnected with my own personal welfare and let me acknowledge it since events have proved i had reason to fear this spot i did not like the old mill but i was far from conceiving what a wretched experience lay before me nor did the fact that the unwelcome request came through the medium of an imbecile arouse any suspicion in my mind as to the truth of the message he brought for foolish as he is in some regards his reliability as an errand-boy is universally known while his partiality for roaming as well as for excitements of all kinds fully accounted for the fact of his being upon the scene of accident i had then nothing but my own disinclinations to contend with and these strong as they were could not at that time and in the mood which my late experience had induced long stand in the way of a duty so apparent i consequently testified my willingness to go to the mill and in a few minutes later set out for that spot with a mind comparatively free from disagreeable forebodings but as we approached the mill and i caught a glimpse of its frowning walls glooming so darkly from out the cluster of trees that environed them i owned that a sensation akin to that which had been awakened in me by mrs pollard's threats and the portentous darkness of her sombre mansion once again swept with its chilling effect over my nerves shocked disgusted with myself at the recurrence of a weakness for which i had so little sympathy i crushed down the feelings i experienced and advanced at once to the door a tall and slim figure met me clothed in some dark enveloping garment and carrying a lantern the injured man is within said he something in the voice made me look up his face was entirely in shadow who are you i asked he did not reply let us go in he said a week before i would have refused to do this without knowing more of my man but the shame from which i had suffered for the last few days had made me so distrustful of myself that i was ready to impute to cowardice even the most ordinary instinct of self-preservation i accordingly followed the man though with each step that i took i felt my apprehensions increase 
to pierce in this manner a depth of sombre darkness with only the dim outline of an unknown man moving silently before me was anything but encouraging in itself then the way was too long and the spot we sought too far from the door a really injured man would not be carried beyond the first room i thought and we had already taken steps enough to be halfway through the building at last i felt that even cowardice was excusable under these circumstances and putting out my hand i touched the man before me on the shoulder where are we going i demanded he continued to move on without reply i shall follow you no longer if you do not speak i cried again this midnight journey through an old building ready to fall into ruin seems to me not only unpleasant but hazardous still no answer i warned you i said and stopped but the next moment i gave an almost frantic bound forward a form had come up against me from behind and i found that a man was following as closely upon my steps as i had been following those of the person who stalked before me the thrill of this discovery will never be forgotten by me for a moment i could not speak and when i did the sound of my voice only added to my terrors you have me in a trap said i who are you and what are your intentions with me we have you where we can reason with you exclaimed the voice of him who pressed against my back and at the sound of those gentlemanly tones with their underlying note of sarcasm i understood that my hour had come it was the voice and intonation of guy pollard End of chapter twenty